welcome to another edition of RM Sotheby's podcast. I'm Peter Haynes, and this week we're back at Salon Privé London, and I'm with my colleagues Duccio Lopresto and Will Smith. And this week we're tackling an interesting topic, that of the electrification of classic cars. And one of the companies leading the way in that space is a company called Everati. So this week we're chatting to their CEO and founder, Justin Lunny. And a reminder that we'd love you to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss another episode. If you want to watch this and any past episodes, then you can also see it in glorious Technicolor on RM Sotheby's YouTube channel. Enjoy. We're sitting directly in the sun. It's rather warm, isn't it, gents? It is, but I'm not complaining. Um, I've got it's a... fantastic. I We've feel like a... I'm in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is not something you often say, is it? No, no, <laughs> not no, in London. Not at all. And, not in London. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we've got a bottle of water. I'm, I could reveal the fact that Will Smith ha- also has a beer under the table. He's hiding it from the, from the viewers. <laughs> it but, was placed you know, there. I'm just going to get it out it there. Was just placed I'm just going to get it out there. Uh, and uh, on this episode, we're going to be talking to our special guest, which is uh, Justin Lunny. He is the CEO and founder of Everati, which is a company that might be known to you uh, because they are uh, one of the very high-end specialists in electrifying classic cars. So he's got quite a lot of interesting things to say about a new area of the market that we'd like to explore a little bit more. Let's just talk a little bit about the market because we've had three auctions. We've had two in North America, in Arizona and Amelia. And we've had one in Paris. And uh, they've gone pretty well, haven't they? And and we're also in the immediate build-up to our Monaco sale, which is only a few weeks away. Um, So what do we think then? How, How, what's your What's the word on the street? It's surprised everyone. I don't know if you agree, Dijon. I think everyone's been surprised by how quickly out of the traps the market has reacted and, and, and in a positive way. And, and, you know, all of the auctions in North America and Europe, Paris was a great success. Amelia, Arizona, incredible numbers that we saw coming out of these. Numbers that we haven't seen for pre-COVID, you know, since pre-COVID mm, times. Mm. And I think everyone's been surprised at how the market has reacted in, in this time where things are opening up, people are started starting to go to events again, starting to go to auctions again. And I suspect, my two pence worth, is that people have had a lot of time to sit around and think about what they want to sell, what they want to buy, what they want to do with their collections. Yeah, and now we're seeing 2022 yeah. being the kind of fruits of that of that, that time, that reflection. Well, a, a couple of people have said to me, you know, that during COVID, there was a couple of years where it was actually quite hard to spend money. I mean, it mm. wasn't impossible, was it? But, um, you know, a lot of people have sort of, they've actually saved a bit of money. Some people have come out of COVID having, um, uh, you know, spent less money perhaps than they might typically have done. Absolutely. And they've got, a, they've got a little bit to spend and they're going shopping, right? Yeah. So I think, I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a, in general a lot of liquidity in the market and uh, people are now spending money in classic cars in general also as a kind of a safe asset. It's better for them to spend money on physical assets like classic cars, which keep the value uh, instead of like putting the money in the bank or invest them in stock in the stock market, but um, as you said, we'll, uh, we were very surprised by the results in Arizona and Paris because both the American and European European market are like behaving really well. And uh, what strikes me a lot is the fact that both pre-war cars, post-war cars, and modern hypercars. All of them had have had great results. If you see like the Duesenbergs we sold in Arizona, they were sold for like almost record prices. Mm. Like the Bugatti B110 in Paris, it sold for like 
almost uh, uh, a three million. And the Ferrari, the 288 GTO we sold in Paris, that exactly. was a record price as well. It's record prices. And people say, you know, after COVID, like, as you said, people want to spend, people want to get these cars for new experiences. And it's great for us, it's great for the collectors and in general for the market. And it's, you know, my relationship with RM goes back to 2007. And when I first started working with RM as a consultant back then, you know, 2008 was the global uh, crash. Yeah. You know, banks were going out of business. Yeah. And of course, what did what happened in 2008? That was the very beginning of that kind of crazy upward curve in the market. And it's yeah. for, for all of the reasons that you would mm. you were just mentioning there. Almost anything else, including property, felt risky. Yeah. yeah. And it's just an interesting aspect of the collector car market that yeah. um, people don't perceive it as being a risky place to, 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 to put money. And, and um, whilst I don't think any of us around this table uh, want to get back to a situation where speculators are coming back into the market, because mm. that's not a good thing. No. Um, I think what time has proven, right, is that um, although the steepness of the curve varies, yeah. uh, it's still a it's still a pretty safe place to, to put money. There's a lot of things going on in the world, so yeah. there is a lot of instability right now. Absolutely. But the early signs are that that doesn't seem to be affecting the car market no, too much. No, it doesn't. And I think instability in in the wider financial markets always tends to result in people gravitating towards gold, yeah. fixed assets like watches, cars, wine, wine art. Yeah. You yeah. know that. that it's bad to say it in some ways, but in times of uncertainty, those those asset classes outperform many other investment yeah. alternatives. And I think it's um, like we've seen in 2008 in that in that situation, and now people feel comfort and security in something physical sitting in their garage. Absolutely, and in general, I find it very interesting. Like we are living now in a moment where there is a complete switch in generations because if you look at the top collectors worldwide like the top 100 collectors the average age is above 70 yeah. easily 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 almost 80 yeah so in 5 to 10 years these people unfortunately will not be with us anymore and the new people are coming into the market the new generations through social media as well social media thing has had a great impact for the collector cars market mm. in general and these people like they come and they're looking for for new cars for their garage, to start new collections in general. So it's interesting to see also like this kind of perspective, what sort of cars the young youngsters are going to buy. Yeah. Is it only modern supercars like 80s and 90s hypercars? Or maybe they will be interested in pre-war cars as well. Who knows? But we see that there is a rising interest for... There is. An, uh, it, what, what has struck me about the market over the last few years is that the market for pre-war cars in North America does still feel very robust, doesn't it? And, you know, Absolutely. You, you mentioned you know, great Duesenbergs, Cadillacs. Yeah. They're going for very strong money. Mm. At auction, we see that less frequently, don't we, in, yeah. in, um, we do. in, in Europe. Europe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm a pre-war car guy, really, at my, at my core. Me and, too. Um, but you, yeah. you, you inherited that from your father, right? And I think that same adage is, is true of, of many other collectors who are new to the market, right? They, they, they want to follow their own path, but also they are influenced by their father's and their mother's interests. Yeah. And I think if you have that inherent 
uh, niche interest in, in say, pre-war trialing, let's say. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're a trials guy and you like going muddy and like drinking like real ale. Real ale <laughs> and hip blast around a trial, right? Yeah. That's, your, that's your upbringing, that's your, that's your background. And I think yeah. we will still see that. And I think we'll still see pre-war cars being appreciated by our generation and our newer Absolutely. generations because they have been brought up around it. And I think, I think that what's the beauty of our industry is that you know, we can cater to anyone and any interest. So there's so much scope and variety and taste in, our, in tastes in our industry. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a matter of, I think, of having access to the experience. Mm. For example, I was very lucky to, to, do the, to be able to do the Mille Miglia with my dad mm. with, in an Alfa 1750 pre-war 60 mm. uh, pre-war car. And that was the most incredible experience I've ever had. Mm. Like driving this car, like 1931 engine. In Italy. It, in Italy. <laughs> like, you know, it's very rough. Uh, there's no electronic, no steering, like power steering, whatever. Like, it's such a different experience, even compared to like a 50s car. Mm. So I was able to do the Mille Miglia with a car, so I was able to access it. And after that, I fell in love completely with pre-war cars. Yeah. And if you see what, what's happening in the private sales market, Alpha 8C or Bugatti 35, they're still like selling for crazy money. Yeah. London to Brighton and market. London yeah. to Brighton is a good Hugely example. Hugely buoyant. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think, you know, the pre-war market is, um, you know, there are certain touch points in the pre-war market where there are truly great cars. And there's there's a bit of a uh, an analogy with the, the art market because yeah. contemporary art is where it's at, right? That, right? At the moment. Right. But that doesn't mean to say that suddenly a Rembrandt or a Caravaggio mm. is valueless. Yeah. yeah. Clearly that's never going to happen. No. Sure. You know, you build a collection, you, you might love contemporary art, but mm. you you know at some point you're going to want an old master yeah. and there's because they are works of art that that are that transcend generations yeah yeah i think you know a great alpha pre-war a great Bu bentley a mm. great bugatti a type 35 mm. the market for those cars is never just going to disappear is no. it yeah no. true um, like the mona lisa's of this world yeah they exactly. will always so, be like yeah timeless you know yeah as long as people have the access to the knowledge and uh, the experience yeah, I think it's and also yeah. really, uh, sorry, Ducha, I was going to say, what's also really crucial is the, the, the people that look after these cars, that maintain these cars, that, that if, as long as they are passing down the knowledge to the next generation as to how to maintain yeah. a pre-war car yeah. and look it's after not easy. it, it's not easy, it's, it's, it's labor intensive. But as long as those restorers out there in Europe and America and all over the world are passing down that knowledge as to how to look after those cars, then there's a future for them, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, and yeah. I think you know, Duccio's uh, story there about you know taking part in the Mille Miglia, I think that, that that's a really important point because unlike a picture or a piece of furniture, uh, you know, cars are, they're quite a different asset, if you want to call them that, to have because they are something that are there to be enjoyed. Yeah. And part of the, uh, that's not to say that the picture isn't enjoyed, mm. but it's it's something that you can share communally. With, a car is something that you can share communally with a lot of other people. And, and that's so. where the events, you, you were talking about vintage sports car club trialing and stuff, yeah. you know, in old Austin 7 Chummies. Yeah. I've done a bit of that. It is amazing. Yeah. And if you can get people to do that, just once, yeah. they'll want to do it again, and then they're going to want to go out and buy an Austin 7 Chummy yeah. for £15,000 yeah. just so they can go and do that. And, and I think we've seen at Goodwood the way 
the Duke of Richmond has developed that event into something which is not very much not just about the cars it's about going and dressing up and uh, getting into the, the lifestyle. whole the yeah, li it's a lifestyle it, is, it, it is and what, what you're finding is, is that people that previously had absolutely no interest in cars at all yeah. they want to go to those events because they want a bit like actually people want to go to Henley to watch the rowing yeah. even if they have absolutely no interest in rowing at all and, yeah. but, but you know Goodwood and other events around the world have managed to kind of do that and that's really important because it feeds the market doesn't very it? much absolutely. so very I mean, much. the market lives because of the events mm which are an incredible part of this market. But that wasn't that and way when we were when we were kids and we first met mm. you know, 15 years ago, whatever it yeah. was. That wasn't really the, there were events, and they were in, but there was more enthusiasts. You're right, there were more niche. There more were not niche. as many. But not I think Goodwood is a great example, Peter, mm. because Goodwood is completely inclusive. Anybody could come and pay, yeah. I don't remember what's the normal ticket price, yeah. probably 20 pounds, it's not crazy. 30 pounds. You can just pay that and you can see like the Ferrari GTOs, the McLaren F1, and all the best cars in the world, they are racing. You can touch them if you're allowed to. But that's the great thing about Goodwood. But the secret is, if you buy a classic car, you get better parking. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. Best car park of the yeah, world. People yeah, say, right, I'm going to buy a Morris Minor just because I can get into the, uh, the, the priority parking area. For sure. So, yeah. good tip there for listeners. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and actually, that's quite a serious point because it's very easy... I think particularly for us, you know, within RM Sotheby's and the reputation we have in the marketplace, uh, it's very easy to lapse into a kind of a, a way of talking flippantly about Type 35 Bugattis mm. or 250 GTOs. Yeah. Uh, we, obviously, that isn't what the, the market isn't underpinned by cars like that. It's underpinned by people that want to buy an MG Midget or a, sure. or oh, a yeah. Morris Minor Absolutely. or something very modest. When you think about it, you know, in terms of value and volume, you know, I would think 95% of classic car owners, you know, have cars that are worth under £20,000. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? That's and for so sure. And so that's the core root of the grassroots of this industry. And yeah. I think, you know, events like Goodwood, I know Goodwood doesn't need any more promotion than it already has, but <laughs> those sorts of events in the last 10 years have done a great deal to make bring our industry to the mainstream you know yeah. look at the car manufacturers here today yeah pre presenting their cars to the market for the first time that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago no in a classic car event it just would not have happened no. they would they would just go to geneva or like frankfurt motor show exactly another great example is the ice in st moritz yeah like that event like it's completely inclusive it's open you can just come to the lake and see all these crazy cars like gto's and alpha 8c's running on on the lake and it's just timeless. And, and all just, the manufacturers are there, right? And Ferrari is there, Porsche is there, and like all the big manufacturers, because they, they feel like now that's the place to be, where the great collectors are, but also the main public at the same time. Mm. So it's like the perfect spot for them. Yeah. Myself and uh, Will and Dicho, we've had a quick uh, scan around the event. Well, more than a quick scan around the event. We've had a good look around the event. And uh, on the far side of the lawn from where we're sitting right now uh, is an exhibitor, Everati. Uh, which may well be known to uh, some of you, uh, a lot of you, I would think, because the company's had quite a lot of visibility over the last uh, year or so, and they specialise in electrifying classic cars. And that's a topic that, in a previous conversation, we touched upon a little bit. And we're joined here by the founder and CEO of Everati, uh, Justin Lunny. Thank you very much for coming along. Thank you. And we just thought we'd have a bit of a chinwag about this whole 
world of mm. the, the electrification of classic cars because we all know about the stuff that you can go and buy in a new showroom from all of the Absolutely. volume manufacturers but clearly what you're doing is something quite different from that it's 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 niche it's low volume but I understand it's been going pretty well yeah that's right well thank you pleasure to be here that's that's right I mean I think the um, the reality is that our clients are people who are probably forward-thinking they've got into EV in a certain way and I think the stats show, show themselves really that 90 plus percent of people who've ever driven an EV would never go back to combustion engine so if you start to look at the stats you start to look at these beautiful cars that we see around us if, that, if that's the reality and we are seeing that in a lot of places then um, the only way to really truly give these cars a future is to do the kinds of things that we're doing. Yeah in, in, interesting because we, we would talking about this very topic uh, and you know the whole question of what does the future look like for mm. internal combustion engines classic cars right. we, we all know that they're going to disappear from showrooms but you know if you own a car from the 50s 60s 70s whenever you know how can you how are you going to be able to use it enjoy That's it right. and I guess without a crystal ball none of us know I mean one thing that intrigues me as an outsider looking in I mean have you experienced any uh, any fallout or negativity about taking a Porsche 964 or yep. a Pagoda Mercedes and, and you know doing what you do to them. You'll always have the odd comment um, yeah. but the reality is I would say it's less than four or five percent of, of individuals that we sort of uh, come across so our philosophy is very much that the the car is the most important thing the structure of the car uh, the way it looks, the way it drives, the way it handles um, and we are really redefining these cars as an EV rather than just converting them and, and the difference really is that we're not just shoving any old motor in and battery set and, and trying to make it work. You know, our engineers are ex-McLaren, ex-Lotus, ex-JLR, uh, people who have kind of really defined some of the new EVs that you're starting to see on the road um, and therefore in the same way as you might buy a country pile and give it new heating or AV or, or air conditioning, we're giving these vehicles a new heart, but of course everything you also do is reversible. So if you have your matching numbers, for argument's sake, Pagoda, you can still have the, the motor with it and, and sell it with it if you choose to sell it. The other thing I suppose is that um, in reality, um, we're, we're opening these cars to a brand new audience as well. You know, so we are getting people in there 30s, uh, even you know, late 20s, are now saying, I love the look of a Pagoda, I love the look of a 911, but I, but I just can't justify buying and, and driving them as a combustion engine car. And then lastly, uh, on your point around the 964, yeah, we, can, we can kind of create a beautifully uh, resolved EV out of let's say an unloved C4 tip yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that actually isn't your kind of and there's no shortage uh, of them right no shortage of those there's no shortage of those yeah yeah no I, I get that. sorry we were just talking off camera about you know the, which cars are being you know, uh, you know are kind of suitable mm. for your business and, and, and but what I've discovered from selling them over the last you know, 15 years or so is there are some cars that are actually quite well suited to there electrification are. because they're underpowered, quite heavy. Um, I'm thinking sort of 50s, 60s, Rolls-Royce era. Um, quite complicated mechanically, complicated to maintain. And also I've sold cars in the past that, you know, might not have an engine, absolutely. right? And they're yep. sold as a chassis, yep. you know, on its own. Project. And so the, I would think those sorts of cars, and I think in, the, in our world, there are lots of them. There are. There sitting are. there without engines, without real provenance or matching numbers or anything like that. Mm. 
that are projects that are, are sitting there unloved in garages that are crying out for people like you to come and breathe new life into them. Yeah, and or they already have the wrong engine. You know, you've got, right. you've got pagodas with V8 that, that really shouldn't be there. Uh, so the reality is that this has been done before, it's just been done in a different way. And I, I completely agree with you. So, so that, you know, if you look at the, the kinds of vehicles we're doing, Generally speaking, there's a lot of them. So we're not taking, you know, we're not taking the sort of pinnacle of, of Ferrari or the pinnacle of, of even Mercedes-Benz. We're taking cars that were made probably in their thousands, uh, certainly, um, and and have a new life. You know, they have a, they have an appeal. You know, our first U.S. client uh, is a Bay Area happens to be a tech billionaire, or certainly made made a lot of money selling his business in in that area. Um, his story is that he used to sit in the back of his father's 964 when he was a child always promised himself one but his, his comment to us is he would never have bought it unless it was electric right okay. entirely the opposite for you know, what we what we would expect generally and, yeah. and that's what we're seeing quite a lot of now yeah. I have a, a question about the your demographics so you're mm. now you just said that this billionaire tech billionaire bought the car yeah. but in general what's the type of demographics what what's your typical buyer persona for, for yeah, this type of car? No, I'd say it, it, we've been very surprised actually we we kind of looked at uh, originally we had quite a lot of interest from collectors who say well I've got three of these and actually why don't I have my, my fourth one being electric um, and that's great and there are some individuals as we know around the world that have big collections but increasingly we're finding as I say it's people with sort of a tech background we have a lady in London who has kids at a school. She's in North That's London. She, uh, the, the school actually in the Camden district, um, cannot, you can't drive to the school within, I think, three streets of the school unless you're in an EV. Okay. Funny old thing, everyone's in the Rytheries and whatever else it is, she's in a really cool series Land Rover. Yeah. So why not? You know, so, so I would say it's quite a mixture, actually, and, and okay. surprisingly so. I mean, if I was restoring a Series 1 Land Rover, for example, right? I mean, you've got a Land Rover, Peter, right? A beautiful yeah, you're one. You're literally the slowest vehicle <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> I mean, I had a Series 1. After my Panda. I had a Series 1, and it, it literally, you know, 50 miles an hour was maxed out, revving yeah. its absolute nuts off. And, you know, a car like that, all right, let's just say, take the example of the car that's found in a barn that is perfectly original, perfect, everything's right on it. That's not the car to convert to an EV, right? But there are plenty of Land Rovers languishing in fields, right? Without engines or with, with, with wrong engines in them and so on, which we've talk, touched on before. But, you know, I think those cars really do suit it. And I think that the, the, the market now, as you see it in London, and that, that example you gave of that lady driving her kids to school in a Land Rover, I just think people love the look of a classic car, so but they're terrified by the mechanical elements. Absolutely, yeah. And I'll be honest, the uh, if you go over to our stand at the moment, you'll see a beautiful sort of sage green Series 2A. Um, that honestly had plants growing out of it when we bought yeah. it. You know, it, it was it was going nowhere as a vehicle, uh, and we've saved it and given it hopefully a new life for you know many years to come. So, so I think that also is really important, and I think that. Look, again, we're not doing it to the Holy Grail cars. That said, look, if somebody brought us a car and we, were, and we take our philosophy in exactly the same way in every vehicle, which is the car is the star, the car is the fabric. The car, in the same way as you don't go knocking walls down in a, a Georgian mansion, um, your, your car and the structure is, is the most important thing. And really, we're just sympathetically upgrading and updating it. Yeah. I have a question um, regarding the engineering process of mm. the car. How, how difficult is it to take, like, a non-electric chassis 
and transform it into an electric yeah. car. What about like the braking system, for example? Now that the car Great is question. much faster, yeah. uh, what about the chassis? Like, so our, um, so I guess in, in keeping with the methodology, really, we're we're not looking to make these hugely faster, if unless they can take it. Yeah. So the Porsche, yes, is much quicker yeah. because. Porsche have you know huge. Uh, there's a huge history of upgrading them and, and, and uh, upgrading braking systems and suspension systems. If you look at our series Land Rover, it's still 13 seconds to 60. You know, and actually you probably don't want to do much more than 60. You really, you really don't. Good to say. <laughs> but in terms quite of dangerous. that's right. And, and but in terms of the engineering, so we have uh, we have a team, as I say, who are primarily ex OEM uh, engineers. Uh, we will take a vehicle. Let's take the series Land Rover. We will take an original car, we will weigh it all four corners, uh, we'll look at its structure, we'll look at where we can um, where we can sort of fit our bits. We 3D scan the entire vehicle um, once the powertrain has been taken out uh, and then we CAD design a brand new um, solution for that car. We install it, we test it. So every car that we're doing at the moment, every model we're doing at the moment, takes about a year's worth of development, quite a few thousand hours. But what that means is that that's been engineered to OEM quality, such that we can then effectively create many more of them. And, and that's really our business model. And, and, and I think that that's the point I was going to make, is your Everart is not in the business of um, can, you know, you don't want me turning up with a Triumph, TR, a ropey old Triumph right. TR4, and saying, "Can you electrify it for me?" Your business model is that you are selling fully, you know, from the ground up, engineered That's exactly uh, right. products as as any OEM would do. That's and, exactly and, right. and so you're not a converter; you are a manufacturer. Yeah. So yeah, and it's a fine line. So the the vehicle itself is always the customers first so the series two if they brought it to us or we find it but essentially it's their vehicle right. and that's quite important from an IP perspective and, and everything else but but everything else from there is pre-engineered and predefined for that vehicle so you know everything we're doing on a series two is entirely different as you might imagine to our GT40 you know and yeah. it's different batteries different motors different power electronics so uh, but you're absolutely right the, the the end result is a product that we can stand on uh, we can support we can serve although EVs don't need much servicing it's mainly the the oily bits that are left yeah. that need the uh, attention um, so yeah that's our that's our model quick okay. question uh, Justin on, on promotion of electric vehicles mm. and it's a subject that I first heard about maybe three years ago when I went to a conference in Monaco a company looking to start a race series mm. and, and I know that a couple of race series are starting up that's right have you ever already got any plans to sort of sponsor or get involved with any race series of, of just electric racing cars yeah absolutely so I think we're not uh, we haven't it, uh, put anything out there yet but you can imagine the engineering that's gone into our GT40 mm. would be perfect for that environment yeah. so to give you some stats you know that that a powertrain is a twin 400 horsepower, 400 newton meters of torque motors for 800 horsepower mm. uh, in a package that is very compact. Um, it has uh, 60 kilowatt hours of very, very high uh, energy batteries, so yeah. very quick to discharge and recharge. Um, and it's been built essentially to, to do that kind of job. Sure. So, uh, for example, with the Porsche Taycan, you'll be familiar with, yeah. that's an 800 volt architecture. Our GT40 is 700 volts, so yeah. it's, it's probably the most advanced technologies in a retro electric vehicle. Uh, yeah. And of course, that does then mean we could, um, you know, we could track it. We could do things. I don't know, maybe around Formula E or something sure. like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. traditionally, like obviously in the combustion engine technology, racing has always been the 
testbed for right. companies to, to show their, their, their prowess of what they can do. Absolutely. I'd imagine, I'd like to think in the, in the EV world, that would be similar. Definitely. And yeah, it, 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 we're looking and we're talking to people about that very subject at the moment. You know, I, I don't think we're there yet, but wouldn't it be great to have a, almost a, yeah, a version of Goodwood, but fully yeah. EV? You know, and actually cars. being able to do that would be great. And cars that people love. You know, the reality yeah. is we're doing this to cars that people absolutely adore. Um, and that, yeah, that, we're fortunate, right? We're doing it with things that people already love, but actually um, they love them for a reason. And actually, why not be able to see them continue to race? We can even race on days that are supposed to be uh, quiet days, obviously, on racetracks as well. So we're not, we're not limited by noise restrictions either. Yeah. Yeah. And a quick question, um, because one of the most emotive things about particularly classic cars is the noise. Mm. Uh, how do you guys deal with that? Yeah, we have, uh, we have a philosophy that we try to... Uh, first of all, keep the balance of the cars. So again, the, the, the sort of emotion around the driving experience is, uh, is similar, not the same. Uh, and we also have the ability to add back in sound. Now, it, it's kind of an interesting one. You know, we, on our 9, 911, we have um, uh, sound generation systems that are actually the same as used in a brand new, let's say, diesel with a sport button. You know, it's the same kind of technology. It also reverberates through the chassis. So when you switch it on, the car is vibrating as you'd expect. Now, honestly, I drive it like that 20% of the time. The rest, I just switch it off because it's kind of not yeah. needed. But, yeah. Yeah. But, it's, but it's a bit of fun. And actually, if you want that re-engagement, you want some of that experience, um, I think it's quite a nice touch, but it's not necessary. No. Our GT40, we're probably going one level further than that. We're also looking at things like virtual gear change technologies where we're looking to potentially map the EV powertrain to let's say a V8 and be able to change gears in inverted commas. So again, trying to bring that engagement back into something that um, has been designed, let's be honest, as an on-off switch essentially, um, but yeah, retain the character. And, I, and I've, I've, I've got another question because RM Sotheby's, we're an auction house, so we spend a lot of time talking to people, not necessarily purely in the context of if investment mm. you know because nobody has a crystal ball and and I, I think it's fair to say that we are trying to promote cars as a hobby yes. rather than as a pure investment but you can't get around the fact that a lot of people do get into cars um, because it feels like a relatively mm. safe place to have their money tied up the EVs are quite an interesting area aren't they because yeah. um, there's not a lot of track record and history to, right. to talk about uh, to, to kind of analyze uh, where values go in the future no. so I mean wh what's your take on that so I think there's a couple of ways of answering that so I think the first is to build the best quality we absolutely can so one example of that is we've just signed an agreement with uh, Aria in, in the United States to build our Porsches um, they built as you may know quite a lot of uh, well around 130 of Singer Porsches so in terms of build quality and, um, and sort of fit and finish, the best quality always shines through. The second thing, however, is we also offer the ability to, as we've said before, retain not only the engine, but also the other elements. And everything we do is reversible. So for example, you know, as I said before, if you've got the original powertrain, um, it's still matching numbers. The engine just happens to be in your, you know, your, your shed. in your shed, your your uh, yeah, your, your your office, or if your wife let you in the uh, in the kitchen. Uh, but the point is, it's there, it's on display, and if you choose to sell the vehicle, it, it can go yeah. along with it. No, so fair. it's still again matching numbers. Um, but as I say, I, I, I often use the, the analogy of a 
a beautiful property where people are upgrading that all the time. If it's listed, clearly you can't do things that you, you, you might do with modern properties. And ours is the same, you know, keeping the structure, keeping the essence, keeping the character and, and the body style without ruining it. It's still a beautiful Porsche, an amazing Land Rover, an amazing um, Pagoda, let's say. Um, it just happens to have a new heart and can be used now in more places than, than and I, could. And I suppose it's also fair to say that the uh, so long as Everati is, is, is a niche business with low volume mm. production capabilities. I mean, you know, one of the things with Singer is that when one does come onto the used market, it's a it's a shortcut to actually getting your hands on, yeah. on, on a singer because I, right. I don't know what the waiting list for a singer is, but you got two years. Yeah, yeah. you got to wait a long time. It's crazy. And uh, and I sub, you know you're likely to going to be in a, a similar situation. That's right. Yeah. Exactly so right. I think you know things are really interesting. Everybody, yeah, clearly that they they, uh, they created really or, or certainly resolved the, the sort of rest resto mod market. Uh, you know, if I'm very honest, we are so fortunate. We're already being mentioned in the same breath you know so people who may may have a roof they may have a singer they may have a Gunther works they now want an Everati which we're very very fortunate about mm. um, and as you rightly say that means that one would imagine there will be a demand because we won't be making you know hundreds of these as you can imagine yeah I yeah. have a, a quick question about the your price position mm. like in, uh, in this landscape of like electric manufacturers, how do yeah. you position your, your brand? So look, I, so everything we do is a full nut and bolt restored vehicle. So it almost take away the drivetrain, that has clearly a, a value and a cost uh, element to it. Um, uh, and clearly then, you know, the, the architecture that we put in there um, is expensive and has many thousands of hours of development to actually put it out there. So uh, our cars start, or our work, and I say cars because, you know, the finished products to car, our work starts at around 150,000 plus tax for, let's say, the series Land Rover, right up to 400 plus on, on the GT40. So it's, okay. it's kind of quite a spread. Uh, but interestingly, you know, we've had people come to us and say, would you do my X? And these mm. are people that actually, the money isn't the issue, it's they want the first EV or whatever it might be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's quite exciting as well. Yeah, absolutely. Know, because then yeah. they're buying into our engineering expertise. Yeah. Um, and of course, yeah, we could potentially then make more of them, but, it, but, but they want the first of something, mm. which is kind, yeah. kind of exciting as well. Uh, what's the how many miles can you do with a single charge again that varies so okay. something like a Land Rover I would say uh, up to about 150 miles okay um, but given if you've driven a series Land Rover you probably don't want to do more than 30 or 40 without a chiropractor with you um, <laughs> uh, right through to something like the, the, the Porsche up to 200 but honestly, I get nearer 170 because I'm enjoying it too much. I mean, yeah. that's yeah, the yeah, reality. Yeah. Is you, yeah. yeah, these are fun cars. Mm -hmm. uh, we put fast charging on everything we do. Okay, so, um, that's great. You know, so, so that's really important. So let's say you want to stop for half an hour, you can probably put another 56% charge back yeah. in it at yeah. a fast charger. So it makes it very, very usable. Um, and of course, turning up at an EV charger in a 1971 Land Rover, um, you get some looks as well. So it's oh, quite yeah. sure. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, get, you get a sticker on your windscreen saying, you <laughs> Why have you parked this old bus? In yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, like, which the thing that I like a lot is the fact that you know many people criticize electric cars, modern electric mm. cars, because of their looks. Absolutely. They complain about the look. It's not. It's emotionless. It's not nice. What you're doing is like, you're taking iconic cars of the past and putting right. now like modern technology, which makes it's like kind of a nice mix. To it, it, so. Exactly. And you know, the reality is that if we were, uh, I suppose, yeah, we've chosen cars and we've been fortunate in the ones we've chosen so far um, and the great thing is we're now getting feedback from customers you know, what they'd like us to do next sure. and, and that's that's a wonderful place to be as you can imagine yeah
I think it's brilliant. And I, I you know, I do honestly, it's an area of the market where it needs people to be doing it, and it needs to be it needs people to be doing it to a very high standard. Yes. So I, I, you know, I think it's uh, it's fantastic what you're doing, and I, I think you know the cars look great. I mean, I had because I've got a an old series Land Rover. I was having a look at yours, okay. and, it, and it, it's you know the workmanship is amazing. So we wish you all the best, and we hope you have a good. Um, uh, show here. Thank you. And yeah. uh, you only need to sell one to make it all worthwhile, well, don't you? <laughs> here. The weather's absolutely outstanding, um, and meeting great, great car girls and boys is, is also a pleasure. So thank you. Cheers, You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks Justin. Thank you. Nice to meet you. So that's it from our coverage at Salon Privé London. Many thanks to Justin Lunny of Everati and to my colleagues Will and Duccio, of course, and the whole team at Salon Privé for having us. Next week, we're heading into Mayfair for a very special edition of the podcast from Savile Row. Stay tuned to find out more. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review because it does help other people find us. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>